This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. Today we're discussing ChatGPT. If you're listening on KXCV or the Bearcat Public Media app, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Real Fiction is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. On Real Fiction, I have discussions with authors and journalists. All episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. I really like the topic for today's program because with ChatGPT, it's not clear what is real and what is fiction. I'll be back in a moment with author expert and linguistics professor, Dr. Naomi Barron. If you heard about the recent technology launch of ChatGPT and felt a sinking feeling in your stomach, this conversation is for you. The artificial intelligence product ChatGPT was recently released. It allows users to pose questions and receive a detailed response within a few seconds. Now we already have AI technology embedded in our mobile devices and our computers. So why has ChatGPT left even the most ardent followers of technology kind of stunned? Professor Naomi Barron is here to help us navigate this topic. She is a professor emerita of linguistics at American University in Washington, D.C., and a national expert on language and technology. She is also an expert on reading, reading on the screen, reading in print. She's the author of numerous books, and in fact, her next book will be about artificial intelligence and the impacts on human writing. Professor Naomi Barron, thank you for joining us, and welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. I have to confess, when I first heard about G- chat GPT, I felt this resistance. We are often hit with big technology trends, but chat GPT struck an emotional chord. So to begin with, what is chat GPT? And I'm really curious what impact might it have on classrooms? A brief description of what ChatGPT is. It's a product of a company called OpenAI. OpenAI has been working with what are known as large language models, which is a humongous amount of data uh, drawn from the internet and from Wikipedia and from books and so forth. And it works by predicting what the next word is going to be in something that you, the human, have input. So it's a, it's a predictive technology. It's been used uh, now for oh, almost going on five years, um, increasingly in public space. We all heard about, or many of us heard about something called GPT-3, which was the predecessor of chat GPT. Uh, GPT stands for a generative pre-trained transformer. Forget about the details. It's a particular model for doing um, artificial intelligence involving initially language. And what happened when ChatGPT came out is for the first time, huge numbers of people 
more than a million people the first week it was out said, I can get access to this. I can try it out, which wasn't true of the earlier kinds of models on which this is based. So what happened uh, basically days after um, ChatGPT became available for public trial, you just sign up through OpenAI, is people in education became terrified. <laughs> they became terrified in the United States, interestingly, in other countries as well. So let's just start with the United States. The big concern was students are going to cheat. And as a result of this concern, uh, there are school districts such as the Los Angeles Unified School District or now the New York City School Public School System that say, you are not allowed to use chat GPT on school computers. Of course, who's going to know what you do when you're outside of class and outside of the school grounds? But the emphasis in the United States has been on how do we catch cheating? There's a reason that there are tools like Turnitin that are so popular in other English-speaking countries as well, but especially in the United States. We're really worried that our students are going to cheat. Interestingly, if you look at the response in Norway, which came just days after ChatGPT was released, because you can get it in basically any language that people are likely to, to access, there, the concern of the teachers of language and literature, that is Norwegian language and literature, there's a union for these people, um, the concern was students won't have the opportunity to think. It wasn't so much plagiarism. It was writing as a process. And if you don't go through the process of trying something out and revising it and then realizing you have to get some more information and then saying, no, I need to start over, if you don't go through that process, you're not learning. And the second component that they worried a lot about is if you're not striving to understand yourself, how can you be a citizen of a democracy? So there was a social concern in Norway Whereas in the United States, it was very much the individual, OMG, the students are going to cheat, and I won't have a way of knowing. As a scholar of this kind of technology and the impact in education, what conversations are taking place in scholarly realms? What's pretty clear from other kinds of things that I work on is that uh, the Air European Union and countries in some ways affiliated with the EU, even if they're not formal members, um, have been very concerned to get digital technologies into the hands of students under the assumption that economically, if the EU is going to compete with places like the United States, it's going to be critical for students to know how to use these technologies. So the big discussion has been, um, should students be um, doing their reading on digital devices as opposed to reading in print? And what the EU has been pressing, I think, too hard on is digital is really important for everybody to get into. Uh, research that I and some of my colleagues have done on reading in digital versus print media suggests there are a number of reasons why doing all of students' reading in digital format is not even what they want to do. That's another discussion, but it's by way of saying I anticipate that the EU and, and related European countries are going to keep a very close eye on this issue of what's happening with this technology. They're going to want students to know about it, but it's the people who teach language, it's the people who teach writing, the people who teach literature, who are starting to stand up and say, you know, we're missing out something if we just let 
this technology run loose because how are students going to learn to write? And learning to write is not just knowing how to spell and learning the grammar rules. It's learning how to use writing as a tool of thinking. And if you can't encourage students to do that, education is failing. My guest today on Real Fiction is Professor Naomi Barron. We are discussing the potential implications of chat GPT in educational settings. A few weeks have passed since our conversation, so I wanted to pause here for a moment and just take a look at how some schools and universities are responding to this challenge. Here is one example I found. The University of Nebraska-Lincoln Center for Transformative Teaching said this about ChatGPT. Naturally, this is a cause for alarm in some quarters, particularly where instructors are worried about academic integrity. But it is equally, if not more so, an opportunity to work with new technology to improve the experience of students. So if you are concerned about how local schools are handling this, ask because chat GPT is very likely an active conversation. We'll return now to my conversation with Professor Naomi Barron about how scholars in her field are monitoring this chat GPT uh, nationally and globally. It's an excellent question that we may have to wait another six months to a year to answer for the scholarly realm issue. Um, I know, for example, there's a local university in the Washington area, uh, George Washington University, that is having a session for its faculty on what the heck are we going to do with these new technologies? But it's a beginning discussion. It's not um, really a discourse on here are the solutions. Much more um, timely has been the response of the K through 12 audience, because those are the people who every day have to figure out, how do I stop my students from using this technology? Now, also, you have to stop your students at the university level, but things are far more decentralized at the university level. It's basically class by class, instructor by instructor, as opposed to um, school-wide policies. What's been interesting is to watch the, um, the media, whether it's the New York Times or whether it's the Washington Post or whether it's the Atlantic or you know, all kinds of media within the last month, a month and a half, have been suggesting ways in which one can productively use a technology like GPT-3. Because there's a, recommend, there's a recognition the technology is not going to go away and it's going to be in people's hands. Earlier versions of this technology based on GPT-3 GPT-3, which is what we'll just call the mother <laughs> of chat GPT, um, those have already been available. Students have already been using them to cheat. There's been a whole sheaf of articles written on that actually back in fall of 2022 before the new chat GPT came out. So what are people brainstorming? Well, one of the suggestions is consider using alternative technologies. Be more oral in your presentation of work rather than having everything be presented in writing. That takes a lot of time if you have a class of 100 students. Another suggestion has been to have students write in longhand. 
Well, most students basically don't know how to write much by hand anymore. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't learn again, and there are all kinds of other reasons. But as of right now, writing by hand is not going to be a live option for many people, in part because their handwriting, to the extent it exists, is very hard to read because they get no practice. Uh, another suggestion is we have to turn in rough drafts and have conversations between student and teacher about what the, the writing assignment is about. It's, it's the best way to teach writing, but it's incredibly time-consuming. Not every instructor wants to do it. They say, you know what, I was hired to teach history. That's what my PhD is in. Uh, I don't know how to teach writing. I don't want to. And some of them really are not particularly good writers. But what else they're trying to do is say, well, how can we use the technology itself in a productive way? Uh, one suggestion has been to use uh, ChatGPT sort of the way that you use an internet search, namely ask it a question and it will give you an answer. Uh, and by the way, the way that things such as Google are evolving is to be much more chat-like in the way that searches are done anyway, because guess what? Google has comparable technologies to what OpenAI does with tools like GPT-3 and ChatGPT. To talk about ethical issues, is it right to use this technology? If so, where? And that's an important discussion to have. It's not always obvious that having the discussion will yield the results you want. Uh, one aspect of what you just said really resonated with me. A situation in which educators consider having students produce drafts, you know, because it speaks to what you mentioned earlier, that writing is a process and anything properly written really will not be completed in one draft. I suppose one challenge is, is there enough time in one day or week for an, an instructor or an educator to manage that. Um, but at the moment, ChatGPT has summoned an American focus on the potential for cheating. So I will just say that I was so curious about how this might work. I performed a little exercise before my conversation with you. And frankly, I tried to cheat on the interview. So here's what I did. I typed in design an interview about ChatGPT. And then I watched as the words came through very quickly. But you know, honestly, it didn't help me that much because the first half of the response was a very technical answer that I could have produced with any Google search. The last part though, that prompted me to consider an aspect of a subject that I hadn't thought of. One of the answers was this. In an interview, the developers of ChatGPT might discuss the challenges, limitations of the model, such as the tendency to generate biased or offensive responses. Ever since the development of large language models, beginning, it became clear there are a number of problems that aren't going to go away anytime fast. Bias, bias in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of ethnicity is baked in because the data set, that is the gazillion pieces of language that are in that data set, contain a lot of bias regarding gender and race and ethnicity. So if you are predicting what the next, most likely next word is, what you're doing is you, <laughs> the, the um, GPT, um, is, is combing through, as it were, other uses of that word and what other words have followed it in those gazillion examples. 
So if there's bias in the data set, there's going to be bias potentially in what is produced. There are also going to be falsehoods. Uh, there are famous examples um, for a particular version of a large language model that Meta created, aka Facebook, um, called Galactica, uh, which was tailored to information on science. And that sounds great. And they put it out in the wild, that is, for people to actually try using. And people created stories, scientific stories, about bears in space. Well, there are no bears in space. <laughs> and Galactica was pulled by Meta three days later because there were just too many falsehoods. You can spread misinformation, disinformation. That has been the case with the internet for a long time, especially with, uh, with the growth of social media. So it's not a new issue with large language models like ChatGPT, but it's just something available now to more people. You don't have to be a programmer to know how to spread disinformation. Um, there's hallucination of just making stuff up like those bears in space. Another issue, uh, because I've played with the model a fair amount, as you might imagine, is if you ask the same question twice, you don't necessarily get the same answer. And sometimes you just get more interesting things that are factually correct. Other times you get things that are factually correct the first time you ask, but not the second. So, for example, I asked whether a short story that was written by GPT could receive a copyright. The first answer that I got, I'll tell you the truth in a minute, the first answer I got was because it is original information, and that's essentially true, because it's drawing from so much, um, it's hard to say this came from Shakespeare or this came from uh, a book that was published last week. The combinations of words are as novel as the combinations of words that you and I are likely to use, because we also call on words and syntax that's been out there for a while. So it said, yes, because it's original wording, it can get copyright. I asked the same question a second time, and it said, no, Artificial intelligence products are not, you know, the things that are produced by artificial intelligence are not eligible for copyright. And indeed, that is true by U.S. law. It's written into U.S. copyright law. But depending on how many times I ask the question, I may or may not come up with the right answer. This is all <laughs> astonishing for those of us who have not been immersed in artificial intelligence at this level. One of the terms you have used a few times is large model. So you are well-grounded in large model artificial intelligence. And I think the point of this, that this new release of ChatGPT is widely available. It's what they call open source. Anyone can get on, ask a question and get a response. Is this a kind of wake up call for us to understand what is already taking place in educational settings? I think that's a very good way of, of putting it, a wake up call. These technologies in other versions, um, sometimes packaged commercially so that I can pay my monthly fee and uh, presumably interact collaboratively with a, a product like SudoWrite, that's S-U-D-O, uh, right, where I write something and then it writes something and presumably I'm still the author and I'm still putting my name on it. But this kind of tool that has gotten, ChatGPT, that has gotten so much public attention 
has been a wake-up call to say, this is out there. Now, within the last year, these so-called large language models, because they began by looking at language issues, also proved they could create incredible artwork. So, you know, Dolly 2 and then there are other versions of this do incredible artwork without a human having to do anything more than give the parameters of what you'd like your piece of art to look like. Similarly, it's been clear that a lot of computer coding is now done through a collaborative effort involving Microsoft and something called GitHub. Forget about the details, but you can ask in, in words to have a computer program written and out will come the program. Occasionally there are errors in it, but sometimes it's even better than what most sort of run-of-the-mill programmers could do. So it's not just the language component, it's all these other things. I'll give a simple example. One of my colleagues at American University teaches French translation. And she says, I now have my students do their translating in class and writing it out by longhand because when I assign it to go home and do it, they use something like Google Translate or DeepL Translator, which does a darn good job these days, because guess what? They're run by these same kind of large language models, which are now so good. So this is the same kind of technology model that we already use with, for example, Google Translate, if we need to translate something from Absolutely. English to French. It was, it was Google engineers who first developed this transformer model that came out in 2017. So not surprisingly, it's there for them to use. Similarly, the translator in Microsoft, which is really good, comes because they have partnered with OpenAI and they paid at that point a billion dollars to use GPT-3 as uh, the grounding of Microsoft Editor, which is part of Microsoft Word. Let me remind listeners that my guest today is Professor Naomi Barron. She is Professor Emerita of Linguistics at American University in Washington, D.C. Um, I'd like to pivot a little here and ask, how did you land in this field? <laughs> All right, I'll start uh, way, way back when I was decades ago teaching at Brown University, I had a student who um, was precocious in the computer science world, because this was long before they were personal computers. And he was really interested in computers and the beginning developments of what would become personal computers. And I was assigned as his advisor. So I got to know some things about what was happening in the computer world long before most people even knew what computers were. I then wrote a book on computer languages because as a linguist, I said, computer language. You know, I think at that time it was things like COBOL and Fortran and then Pascal and that later C and, and other kinds of computer languages, Python these days. But they're called languages. Well, how would a linguist look at that issue? And then uh, as a linguist and as a teacher and as a person who did a lot of work on child language acquisition, I got interested in reading issues. And what are the challenges in reading? And then this new technology was coming and eBooks were coming out through um, uh, things like the Amazon Kindle. And I said, I have to look at reading in a different way. Also, because I've been interested in written language, even before we get to writing on a computer and the history of written language and how it's evolved, I got interested in using computers for writing purposes. And then as technologies evolve, so do my interests. 
And it was a very natural segue to ask, how do, do the newest artificial intelligence technologies impact the ways in which we write? Uh, a number of years ago, I happened to take a course in artificial intelligence and a little bit on programming. So I already knew a little bit about AI, and I've followed as sort of a generally educated reader um, major developments in AI. But it was time now for me to really dig in and find out how does this technology work? How are people likely to use it? What are, what's the good news and the bad news? And that's what my newest book is about. We've just scratched the surface, but what you've done today is help us gain some perspective on this new technology, how it fits into what has already been part of our lives. And it gives us a chance to reflect on where we go from here. The first thing I'm looking for is for us to calm down. The second thing I'm looking for, which is going to be much, much harder, is for us to think more seriously about what it means to make a writing assignment, whether it's K through 12 or universities for college, for graduate school, um, or in the professional world. What are we trying to accomplish? When you step back and you think about what literacy has done for us as human beings, we know, for example, that being literate literally changes your brain. We have some very interesting uh, neurological research on that. We know that there are motivations people have for writing. There's a whole slew of motivations. It's personally understanding yourself. Uh, the famous quotation from Flannery O'Connor is, I write because I only know what I think when I see what I've said. And many, many people um, from Horace Walpole to Joan Didion and William Faulkner have said exactly the same thing. Uh, so writing is, is, is something that is a form of self-discovery. It's a form of sharing. It's a form of emoting. And to the extent that these technologies chip away at our motivation for using writing as a tool of thinking and as a tool for social interaction, we're the losers. We're the losers as individuals and as a Norwegian teachers union for people working on Norwegian language and literature are pointing out, we lose as a society. We have to, we have to come to grips with what we're trying to accomplish as literate people and as educators trying to make literacy, particularly the writing part here, as the core of what education can accomplish. Thank you so much for joining Real Fiction today. And thank you for the opportunity to think together and talk together. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction broadcasts on KXCV. It is also available on the Bearcat public media app. Real Fiction is a production of Real Fiction Media Group. All episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for listening. Here's a preview to next week's Real Fiction episode. In the highly anticipated book Windfall by Erica Bolstad, we get to see what happens when a journalist covering climate change learns that she would inherit potentially valuable mineral rights near an oil field in North Dakota. 
The author of Windfall, Erica Bolstad, will join me. She is a journalist and filmmaker in Portland, Oregon. She spent a decade in Washington, D.C., covering politics and environmental issues. She was a Pulitzer Prize finalist for her work at the Idaho Statesman. She's traveled across the U.S. to tell stories about the effects of climate change. So when Erica learned she would inherit mineral rights near the Bakken oil fields, she set out for North Dakota to investigate this bequest from a great-grandmother who'd vanished from the historical record. Windfall is a big story that addresses the myths and glorifications of the West and how they shaped not only the women of her family, but the wider American story. I hope you'll join me next Saturday, February 25th, for this discussion. Thank you.